Our scripture passage today is Genesis 1, verses 24 to 31, which you can find on page 8 in your bulletin. Before we read the passage, Ron Miller will lead us in a prayer for illumination. Dear God, thank you for the world you made and for the life that is all around us. Birds and their songs, trees and flowers and crops in the fields. Thank you for creating people in, in your imagination and give each uh, of us the breath of life. Please teach us what it means to be human and live in the ways you intend to. And, live, and shape us, your imagination, more and more. And bless Pastor Jim message to us today. Amen. Amen. Genesis 1, 24 to 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. If you know me at all, you will probably not be surprised to learn uh, that I don't pay a lot of attention to professional football. I am aware that the Badgers won yesterday, 61 to 0. Is that even, in a, even a game? I, I don't know. But... I recently heard some news uh, from the, the world of the NFL that caught my attention. Uh, there's a player uh, named Andrew Luck, uh, who was a quarterback uh, for the Indianapolis Colts uh, for the last seven years, until he announced uh, his retirement a week or two ago. Uh, his retirement 
was national news uh, because he's only 29 years old and at the height of his career. Uh, he was the first overall draft pick in 2012, and he's led the Colts to two division titles and, and three playoff uh, appearances. He's also suffered difficult injuries and went through grueling rehab uh, each time to come back and to play. And this was one of the reasons he gave for uh, retiring so early. At the press conference uh, where he announced his retirement, he said, I haven't been able to live the life I want to live. It's taken the joy out of this game. The only way forward for me is to remove myself from football. People were astonished uh, that he would do this uh, because it said that he gave up the potential to earn up to $500 million over the rest of his career if he would just hang in there. Half a billion dollars. I think most of us would probably agree that he made the right decision. Uh, his health, his joy, his life is worth far more than his earning potential, uh, no matter how much that might be. But why is this true? This is what we want to talk about today. This fall, we are reading uh, the book of Genesis with a specific question in mind. What does it teach us about what it means to be human? Now, last week, Pastor Mike uh, set the big picture uh, with the Tower of Babel and, and the great beauty and, and brokenness of humanity. Uh, today, we're coming back to the beginning to talk about God's uh, creation of human beings in Genesis 1, and specifically what it means uh, to be created in the image of God. What, what do we learn uh, from this text about the image of God? Well, th three things I, I want to say today. The image of God is a status. The image of God is a mission. And the image of God is a gift. That's status, mission, and gift. Let's talk about each one of these. First, the image of God is a status. Whenever we read the book of Genesis, it's important to remember that it was written originally in the context of the ancient world. And we'll best interpret it if we do so with that context in mind. This is true for all sorts of things. The, the days of creation, the flood, uh, the Tower of Babel. It's also true for understanding what the image of God means. In the creation myths of the ancient Near East, humanity was created for one very clear purpose. To serve the gods by supplying their needs. The religions of Mesopotamia were built around the daily rituals of, of feeding and caring for the gods, represented by their idol images uh, inside the temples. In this view, the gods are the elite rulers of the universe, and human beings are the lowly servants uh, who feed the, the, the gods and then get to eat their leftovers. In Genesis, the place of humanity is is very different. It couldn't be more different. Human beings are set apart for a special purpose that no other creature can fulfill. One way in which that special status is highlighted uh, in the text is God's personal involvement in their creation. In every other ca case of God creating part of the world in Genesis 1, God creates in the third person. Let there be light. Let there be lights in the sky or like we saw in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures. But when God creates human beings, 
in verse 26, he speaks in the first person. Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let me just say a few words about why God uses the first person plural, you know, us and, and our. This is a, a famous point of interpretation. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but let me just give you three of the most important possibilities. The first one is that God, uh, some think, uh, God speaks here as the Trinity. Since Christians believe that God is triune, three persons with one nature, you can understand why Christian readers have looked back at verse uh, 26 and said, well, this makes sense. This is the triune God speaking. The, the problem is, if this is the case, it wouldn't have made much sense to the original readers. And for this reason, there, there are two other more, more likely possibilities. God might be using the, the royal we here. You know, one commentator says that, that Queen Victoria is famous for saying at a dinner party, uh, when someone told a risque joke, we are not amused. So maybe God is speaking like a king when he says, let us make. The problem with this interpretation is that there, there isn't another example of a king or a queen uh, speaking like this in the Bible. It just doesn't seem to be the way they, they spoke. Uh, so the last option is the one that I think is most likely. It's another kind of royal picture. In, in this interpretation, God is speaking here to his heavenly court of angels. You know that God has a heavenly court, right? Now, for example, in Job chapter 1, we hear that the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And we see this elsewhere, uh, like in Isaiah 6, uh, or in some of the scenes in Revelation, they present a similar picture of God's heavenly throne room. This, this royal perspective of God as the king speaking before his court fits with something else that we know kings did in the ancient Near East that's related to the idea of creating something in your image. The ancient Near Eastern kings also made images. They, they set up images, statues of themselves in places that they ruled to represent their power and their authority in far-off places. So if God is the divine king, ruling from heaven, and human beings are in his image, representing his power and authority in his realm, then they have a remarkable status. They're not just statues. They're living, breathing representatives of the king. What happens when you believe this? that every person you meet has this status and reflects divine glory. It has a profound impact on how you see people and how you interact with them. The most important working out of this doctrine in our own country's history has to be in the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. My big summer read this year was a biography of the great Frederick Douglass, uh, the escaped slave who became a national leader of the anti-slavery movement. There's so much uh, about him that impresses me. But one thing that I took away from his story uh, was the degree to which uh, his Christian faith informed everything that he did and how he used the Bible's teaching 
to correct a distorted American Christianity that defended slavery. In a, in a lecture on the in, inhumanity of slavery in 1850, he said, I have shown that slavery is wicked. Wicked in that it violates the great law of liberty written on every human heart. Wicked in that it violates the first command of the Decalogue. Wicked in that it fosters the most disgusting licentiousness. Wicked in that it mars and defaces the image of God by cruel and barbarous inflictions. Wicked in that it contravenes the laws of eternal justice and tramples in the dust all the humane and heavenly precepts of the New Testament. Because Christians believe that all people of every age, ability, race, and sex are image bearers of God, they stand against anything that mars and defaces that image. This applies even to how we treat the, the perpetrators of injustice. Uh, to quote uh, John Calvin again for the second time in our service today, uh, he wrote, We are not to reflect on the wickedness of people, but to look to the image of God in them, an image which, covering and obliterating their faults, should allure us to love and embrace them. This is the status that's given humanity here. So humanity is given this great status, but, but God's intention for human beings was not just that they stand at attention, uh, shining with his glory. You know, that would, would have been good enough in its own way, but, but God also gives human beings a mission in verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Every task that's given here to human beings is a reflection of God's own work. Let me show you what I mean. First, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Humanity was to multiply God's image in the world. God had filled the earth. Now, by being fruitful, human beings were to fill it even more. Second, he says, subdue it, to take charge of it. God had formed the earth. But by subduing it, human beings were to form it even more. The word for subdue here is historically related to another Hebrew word, uh, the word for a pottery kiln, uh, that fits well with the idea here. Human beings are to work the world like clay, to transform it. On the seventh day, when God rested, creation, he says, was very good. But there's a sense in which it was still incomplete. Human beings were given the mission of unfolding the potential of the world. In the words of one theologian, Al Wolters, mankind as God's representatives on earth carry on where God left off. So they were to be fruitful and multiply, to, to subdue the earth. To, and third, God commands human beings to have dominion over the other creatures. God is the great king, but humanity serves as rulers over this creation of his. They were to serve as his vice regents, the, the creatures to whom he had delegated his authority to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. So I've said that the image of God is both a, a, a status 
of the, being a representative of the king and a mission to bring that king's rule into the whole of creation. Let me offer uh, an illustration for this. Since moving back to Madison two years ago, I've been fascinated by this uh, little local software company, Epic. And uh, a few months ago, I got to have lunch on the campus. And just to hang out there made me feel very cool and, and very nerdy at the same time. But the thing that makes Epic uh, such a successful company, I think, is not just that they make a really great medical software product. It's that they send their company's representatives out into the world to put it to work in, in hospitals and clinics. This is what I mean when I say that the image of God is both a status and a mission. You're not just God's product or his work of art to hang on the wall. You're meant to go out representing God in the world. This means that we image God in, in every area of our lives. We image God in business when we see our work not just as a means to an end like money or power, but as a God-given way of exercising rule over creation. Entrepreneurs image God when they treat their employees not as servants, but as co-creators with them in their work under God. Employees image God when they do their work with integrity, not seeking only to protect their own interests, but also the interests of the whole business, the whole industry, the whole society. It's not just business. We, we image God in the arts when we embrace our calling as creatives made by a creative God. We image God in science and technology as we investigate God's creation, as we develop its potential, and as we fulfill humanity's calling to be caretakers and, and stewards of the creation. We image God in the home as we care for children and contribute to our family's well-being. We image God in the classroom as teachers and learners. In this view, faith has everything to do with how we live here and now in every calling and vocation represented in this room. This is what I, we mean then when we say that the image of God is both a status and a mission. The, the, the final thing that we see here is that the image of God is also an incredible gift. The God who's portrayed in Genesis 1 is one who delights in giving good gifts to his creatures. He calls creation into being. He blesses. And he even gives his creatures food in verse 29. See, I have given you every plant yielding a seed that is upon the face of the earth. You know, I think this might have been the most shocking verse uh, in an ancient Near Eastern context. In those cultures, human beings were created to feed and to water the gods. This is a shocking reversal. This god feeds his creatures. The generosity of God in relationship to humanity becomes increasingly important as the story of Genesis continues. Because when humans deface God's image with violence and sin, when they fail to live up to their calling in the world, God keeps giving. After the fall, he, he promises that one day a redeemer will come, a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He makes the world's first sacrifice in order to clothe Adam and Eve as they leave the garden. 
And ultimately, he gives himself in the person of his own son, Jesus, who shows us what it truly means to bear God's image and rule over creation. What does it look like? It looks like serving, washing the feet of your students. It looks like suffering love, forgiving even your enemies. It looks like healing the sick and feeding the hungry. Jesus reflects God's image and pursues God's mission perfectly. In the midst of a fractured and broken world, he allows himself to become fractured and broken on the cross so that humanity might be remade and and renewed. This is the good news, friends. It's not only that we recognize the beauty and goodness for which we were made and try to live up to it. It's not just that we confess the ways in which we have fallen short as individuals and as a community in imaging God as he intended. The good news is that through union and communion with Christ, by faith, we become new kinds of people who reflect God's great love for his creation. The Japanese uh, have a form of pottery that they call kintsugi. This is the art of repairing broken pottery with gold or silver poured into the cracks. The understanding is that uh, the piece is even more beautiful for having been broken. This is the mysterious power of God's grace. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. God's promise is that when we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for us, he can incorporate even our cracks and fractures into the beauty of the new creation. As many of you know, a couple of years ago, Geneva created a special role for one of our members, Dr. Cal DeWitt, to serve us as the elder for creation care. I think sometimes we think about that in a way that's too limited, uh, focused only on environmental concerns, as important as they are. But what we've seen here today is that real creation care involves everything that we've talked about, what it means to be human created in the image of God. I was reminded of this uh, this week as I had the opportunity to read through uh, some of Cal's writings on Genesis 1. And I want to encourage you all to, to talk to him about these things after the service today. If, if you don't know him, I'd love to introduce you. And Cal and Ruth will also be hosting a bonfire at their property next month, so perhaps we can all hear more then. Uh, but I want to end today by uh, reading a quote from an essay that Cal wrote 25 years ago, uh, reflecting on what it means to be faithful uh, to this great creation mandate that we've talked about today, to be God's image bearers. Here's what he wrote. Are we being faithful to God's mandate and blessing of fruitfulness? We are to the extent that we are seeking first the kingdom of God in all its fruitfulness and fullness. Jesus Christ has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. As disciples of the one who created all things, 
sustains all things and reconciles all things. We too are creative and imaginative. We also seek sustainability in God's creation and work to undo the wrong and make things right with all God's creatures. All for the sake of the kingdom of God that has begun and for whose coming we pray. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its rightness. If it is the kingdom of God, if it is the kingdom we seek first in our prayerful thinking and dreaming, in our conversations and telling, and in our diligent labor and working, the other things of the abundant life in Jesus Christ, creator, sustainer, and reconciler, will come as consequence. If it is the kingdom we seek first in our living, we will be like letters of recommendation and witness, written not on paper, but in lives and landscapes, publications and lives and landscapes, that creation is blessed with fruitfulness and fullness, to the glory and delight of God. Friends, we can be faithful because God has been faithful to us. We love because he loved us first. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, St. Augustine prayed, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Uh, My prayer today is that we would find our rest in the satisfaction and fulfillment that comes only from relationship with you, a relationship for which we were made. Forgive us for all the ways in which we go astray and seek life in created things rather than in our creator. Forgive us and, and renew us in Christ so that we may discover who we were made to be in him. May we be your servants, representatives of your grace in this broken world. May we give as you give and serve as you serve and love as you love so that others might come to know you as creator and as redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.